0: Father, thank you for the very comforting and reassuring words that we have just sung, that we have just celebrated. Indeed, it is all your initiative. It is Jesus' 100% complete satisfaction that we rest in tonight. I pray now as we prepare to hear from your word that you would speak through your very imperfect and feeble servant's lips. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, go ahead and take a seat and, uh, and welcome again to Epiphany. Glad to have you here tonight on what Matt mentioned is uh, this Reformation Sunday. Uh, what do we talk about when we talk about Reformation Sunday? Well, at least in uh, Protestant churches all over the world today, This is the Sunday we set apart to recognize uh, what happened just about 500 years ago with the uh, reformation of the church. And I emphasize reformation because it wasn't a revolution, it wasn't meant to be a revolution, it was meant to be a reforming of some things that had been lost, some doctrines that had been lost, some essential teachings that had been lost for quite some time, especially in the medieval church, and this is the celebration of the recovery of those teachings and those doctrines today. And so to do that first, I figured what I'd do is read to you a portion of Scripture tonight from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, that I think really do a good job of emphasizing some of the key truths that had been lost and that were indeed recovered uh, during this period all that time ago. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, the passage reads like this. You should be able to follow along with the words on your screen. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience So that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So it was October 31st, 1517. Uh, Just a little over 500 years ago, a rather unknown monk named Martin Luther nailed a document to the door of a small church in Wittenberg, Germany. The document had 95 thesis statements written on it. The title of the document, very catchy, a disputation on the power and efficacy of indulgences. By the way, if you want to hear catchy titles like that, almost every document you find from back then has a title that's a paragraph long. Uh, But it's descriptive. I mean, it tells you exactly what he wants to talk about. And his goal, again, it wasn't to start a movement, and especially at that time, not at all. I mean, he wasn't even looking to reform the church, none of them. His goal really was pretty simple. He just wanted to have a, a local debate with some church leaders about some abuses that he was seeing in the church. There were abuses with, with money, uh, abuses with power, abuses with theology. But in the providence of God within weeks, mainly because of the recent invention of the Gutenberg printing press. His statements had spread far and wide. Somebody that we don't know read this document that he had nailed to the door and said, we got to make copies of this. And they did. And it spread. It spread. It spread. And soon... All over Europe, massive debates were taking place, centering on really this question. This was the question that ultimately ended up being debated. How is it that a human being, a sinner, can be right with God? How is it that an imperfect, flawed human being can be reconciled to a holy, just, and good God? Luther and and many others had come to see the scriptures taught an entirely different way of God saving his people than what the church had been teaching for at least hundreds of years before that. And so what we today refer to as the Reformation really began then. So, what did they say actually saved a person, made a person right with a holy God? Well, the, the Reformers really united around five statements that they believed summed up Scripture's teaching. It was just a, a summary way of trying to say what the Scripture said about this subject. And the, the first statement they confessed was a statement about where God had revealed this salvation. They said it was, quote, from Scripture alone, or in Latin to sound fancy, sola scriptura. Now, when they said this, they did not mean that the words of the church fathers or other Christians before them weren't important. That's not what they they were intending. Nor did they mean that wise scholarship of the Bible wasn't helpful. They did think it was helpful, and they did a lot of it. What they meant by the statement sola scriptura is that in the final analysis, the final authority for determining what we should believe and what we should practice, at least on the very least, the moral level, was always going to be in finality God's word as revealed in the pages of scripture. That that is to be the ultimate measuring rod for determining spiritual and moral truth. And indeed, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 tells us not to go beyond what is written. And 2 Timothy 3:16 says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And Romans 10:17 tells us that faith, the faith that we need, is created by the preaching of this word. Because all scripture is said to be breathed out by God, whereas traditions and other writings are not, we look to it as our ultimate authority. At the time of the Reformation, this was far from the case. This was not being taught at all. There were numerous extra-biblical, unbiblical, and even anti-biblical teachings being spread throughout the church that often flat-out contradicted the scriptures. Their view said that various traditions, councils, catechisms, etc. had equal authority to the scriptures, that the scriptures were on sort of this equal plane as the church developed throughout all of history. And in fact, those teachings ended up becoming more of an authority, at least functionally, for many. The reformer said, since Scripture is the ultimate authority, we have to find out how we're actually saved from them, from those pages. Now, as I think about the modern church today, as I think about where we live and what we hear, whether it be quote-unquote liberal churches or conservative churches, you know, that we break things down like that, unfortunately, but that's the, the terminology. I can't help but notice that we go far too often beyond what is written. Uh, All sorts of people claim to be giving a a prophetic word here or uh, a new teaching there. God told me, and therefore you need to follow it, that kind of thing. But the principle that we stand on is that the doctrine being espoused, if the teaching being espoused by anyone, can't be proven or is in contradiction to the scriptures, then it should not be accepted as sound. Secondly, the reformers said that salvation, the act of us being made right with God, came by grace alone. Grace alone. In other words, God does all the work. God does all the work of the saving. Listen to our passage again. Verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses in sins, but God, being rich in mercy, verse 4. Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now, again, who's doing the verbs? You, it's Paul talking to humanity, and Human beings, dead in trespasses and sins. There's not a whole lot of corpses doing a whole lot of things. They don't move, they don't contribute, they don't help the situation. That's the term he uses to describe humanity. Dead in trespasses and sins. But God, because of the great love that he has for you, makes you alive together with Christ. He raises you up with Christ all by his grace. He stoops down to where we're at. He doesn't wait for us to climb the ladder of our own righteousness to him. So much in our world teaches that life is all about our our own climbing and our own striving to reach certain plateaus and certain mountain heights. And there's a sense in which that can be good in one sphere of life. It's good to pursue a career with vigor and to work hard and to try your best. Yes, that's fine. It's good to pursue greatness. But that is not the system that God has set up in order to be made made right with him. He does not wait for us to come up. He comes down. And delivers the goods. And he does it in a simple way. He does it in things like this, with a holy and adequate preacher standing up before you telling him or telling you about him. He does it with bread and wine, the fruit of the vine. He says, Here, you want me? Here's my son's body and blood. Why? Given for the forgiveness of your sins. I'm not going to wait for you to come to me, because I know if I waited, you'd never come. So I'm coming to where you're at. I heard a great illustration of, I think, what this sort of stooping down looks like a little while back from a book entitled Moral Lessons by physician Richard Selzer. He describes a scene in the hospital room after he had performed surgery on a a young woman's face. He says, quote, I I stand by the bed where the young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted and palsy, clownish almost. A tiny, tiny twig of the facial nerve, one of the muscles of her mouth has been severed and she will be that way from now on. I had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh, Selzer says. I promise you, that." Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I cut this little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed. And together they seem to be in a world all their own, in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, not noticing my presence at all, private, And I begin to ask myself, who are they? He and this this wry mouth that I have made who gaze at each other and touch each other so generously. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? I look down and say, yes, it will. It's because of the nerve that was cut. She nods and is Silent, but the young man smiles. I like it. It's cute. Selzer writes All at once, I know who he is. I understand, and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with the divine unmindful he bends to kiss her crooked mouth and i am so close that i can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers to show her that their kiss still works there's a sense in which god that's what that's what we're being told when we're being told that he comes down to us by his grace he stoops down to us in our sin-scarred world and through Jesus Christ proves that the relationship can and still will work. Now, most Christians I know would agree wholeheartedly with that statement. Most Protestants, Catholics, Eastern Orthodox people would affirm the statement in theory. But oh, how we all find ourselves adding something, anything to the mix to try and make salvation. Something that we at least contribute to a little bit. But God simply will not have it. It must all be his grace. All his stooping that saves Or nothing at all. We are merely recipients of a divine kiss from a God who loves us even as we by our sins sit there twisted. How is this gift received? Sola fide. Faith alone. Listen again to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Now, what we're tempted to do because we're such addicts to our own works and to our own contribution and really to control, to wanting some control, is to somehow then or make make faith into our part. It's our work. That's, That's where I come in. I've heard so many sermons that are preached like this. Now, God has done everything necessary for you on the cross, but now it's your turn. It's your part. You've got to have the faith. Come on down. You're a hundred steps away from salvation. I heard that preached once at a large revival. You're a hundred steps away from salvation. Just get out of that seat and walk those hundred steps. And God will meet you here. Take that first step of faith. But not so fast. Because this text says, even the faith we need to receive what God has done for us in Christ is a gift as well. It's not something we can muster up, it's something that comes, yes, even that, by His grace. Theologian Stephen Paulson says it like this. Faith is certain precisely because it is not a power of humans, but depends only upon God's faithfulness to the promise, precisely while the recipients are unfaithful. Hope does not yet see its glory, but faith already has Christ, and so salvation is secured in fact. That is faith, faith that grabs hold of the work of Christ for one's own self simply the ability to say to the offer of Christ sure I'll take it he's got the gift he's here with it, it's yours and the reason that God can save us by grace through faith isn't because he merely ignores sin or winks at sin as if it doesn't matter it does, he doesn't like things that break his world or break his creation or hurt his people, he doesn't No, far from it. The reason God can graciously save you and I simply through faith is because of the work of his son, Jesus Christ. This is the fourth statement they united around. Solus Christus, or Christ alone. Verse four again. But God, being rich in mercy. Why? What did he do? Because he was rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with who? Christ. Colossians 2 says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, who's him? Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. How did he cancel the record of debt? Paul says, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, God himself, takes the wrath against sin on our behalf so that we would never have to face it ever. Out of great love for you, he absorbs the poison of sin. Jesus Christ goes behind the veil of the Father's holiness, behind the curtain where our sin is eating us away, and at the cross, he takes it all. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endures the cross, despises the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God. So, the four statements so far. We find out about this from Scripture alone. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Jesus Christ alone. And what does all that result in? Well, the fifth statement. Glory to God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. The result of our reconciliation is us simply responding something like this. Thank you. Thank you. It's that simple. It's why we sing what we do. We recount so often in our songs what God has done. Why? So that we can then be filled with gratitude and thanksgiving to this God who's done it all for us. So, let me wrap up here. As we look at the uh, what animated the original Reformation, it seems to me, when I look around the modern church, that frankly there needs to be a modern Reformation again of these things. We need to recover the majesty, awesomeness, and liberating power of the gospel once again. The late Robert Capon once memor- memorably wrote, the Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering drunk. Now, he's not talking about booze. He says, went blind, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof Grace bottle after bottle of pure distillate of scripture, one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel, after all those centuries of trying to lift ourselves into heaven by worrying about the perfection of our bootstraps, suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home before they started indeed may we once again recover the pure distillate of scripture sipping on all the glory of this good news this salvation so that we would be so intoxicated with this good news that we walk in the great freedom that God provides through it let's pray father thank you thank you that from start to finish it's all you you're doing the verbs yes you work in us and you change us and the rest of this life will be this you'll be working on us and disciplining us as a father does his children but ultimately our salvation is wrapped up in Jesus Christ And what he's done alone, totally, period. And so we give you all praise and thanksgiving as we pray together with one voice, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses